You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So good afternoon everyone, welcome and since it's January 23rd, I can still say happy new year. So really happy new year to all of you uh, friends and colleagues here. So we're going to have an exciting year, lots of things to discuss. And Friends of Europe looks forward to seeing you very often uh, with us. Um, so since it's the start of the new year and we're in a good mood, I'm going to start off with some good news as well. Um, we're talking today about Europe, uh, Japan and Africa. And the good news really is actually four bits of good news. First of all, EU-Africa relations are in a good place. We've had a summit, there are challenges, but we're reinforcing this partnership. And we've been talking about a number of issues that go just beyond aid and trade now. So this is good news. EU-Japan relations also are in a better place than ever before, uh, very close to signing and uh, ratifying the uh, partnership agreement, the new partnership agreement. Africa is on the agenda of more and more nations. So obviously we've talked about EU and Japan, but there's also China, there's India, there's Korea, there's Turkey. A lot of interest also in the G20 on Africa. And the final bit of good news, as far as I can see, is that connectivity, Africa can connectivity, infrastructure development of Africa, which has really not been talked about very much so far, is really, really up there, high up on the political and economic agenda. But, and unfortunately in this world we live in, uh, there is always a but as well. And that is that the financing needs of African infrastructure are enormous. I don't know how many of you saw the latest African Development Bank report, but they say that up to $200 billion uh, will be needed to update Africa's infrastructure. And the financing gap that they have identified is 100 billion euros. Now, that kind of money has to be found in the coming 10, 20 years. If Africa is to keep up its rather resilient um, economic performance so far, uh, I think the good news also is that no longer do we just rely on official development aid. There's, uh, Africa has got boosting its tax revenues, domestic finance mobilization. Uh, there are remittances flowing there that we are now taking into account as well. FDI flows are going into Africa. The latest figures talk about 60 billion in FDI investment inflows recently. And more than $100 trillion is managed by institutional investors and commercial banks globally. So access to funding, I think, can be managed, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But there is more than just money about. There's also soft infrastructure, the governance, the rules, uh, whether or not there is corruption, how open is this uh, procedure and process. And I don't know how many of you read uh, the Frankly Speaking that we wrote today at Friends of Europe. We're also talking about the need for cooperation uh, among all the different in a sense, competing powers that are out there in Africa working on infrastructure, sometimes very competing infrastructure projects. So the European Union has just launched its uh, external investment plan. So there's about, what, 44 billion uh, in private investment is being sought for. But it's really interesting. Japan has been working on Africa, in Africa, for years. 
the first conference on Africa was held in 1994, and the sixth summit, uh, Africa-Japan uh, summit, was held in 2016 in, in, in Kenya. So there is already a lot of work there that can be shared and exchanged and work together. Now, Prime Minister Abe has just announced, and I think it's really a new an interesting concept, which is the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And that's about something that is really important, I think, in the world, connecting Asia and Africa and Europe, you know, going beyond uh, the regions uh, per se, extra, uh, out going outside. And Japan also recently at the United Nations talked about the need for quality infrastructure. So not just in terms of the real quality of the infrastructure, but also governance of, of this infrastructure. So... You know, we thought it would be time to really bring our experts together, I'm going to introduce them in a minute, to talk about what more can Europe and Japan do together in a continent where both have been active, as I've said, for many, many years. So enough from me, I'm Shada Islam from Friends of Europe, and I'm going to introduce uh, very briefly, because I think you have the detailed CVs with you, Batuli Nikube. I've uh, sort of uh, did done it properly, but they should be done. You can tell us how Mtuli should be done. Uh, Chief Economist and Vice President of the African Development Bank until 2015, from 2010, and who is now Managing Director at Quantum Global Research and has developed the Africa Investment Index, which is a guide to investing in Africa. And he's also written a book recently called, very simply, Infrastructure in Africa. So that is amazing. Uh, we have with us also Professor Hiroyuki Hino. He's visiting professor in the Poverty and Inequality Initiative at the University of Cape Town. He's worked previously at the International Monetary Fund and also with JICA, which is a partner of Friends of Europe when we talk about development issues. You've also, Professor Hino, worked as personal advisor to the Kenyan Prime Minister at some point, so very much the personal uh, insights as well. Francesca Di Mauro is from DEFCO, also vast experience in development issues and African issues, and also, I think, Japan-Africa cooperation. And last but not least, Ala Alessa, Managing Director of en Endeavor Energy, who also uh, has 15 years of experience in finance and investment management. So let's kick off this conversation. You know the rules of the game. Uh, I'm going to put a few questions to our panelists, then I'll open the floor, get questions from you, go back to the panelists, and then we're going to have an interesting and insightful discussion. So, Matuli, I'm going to go to you first of all. And, you know, I've gone on and on about how important infrastructure is, but really let's hear from the real expert. Why are we focusing on infrastructure when there are so many other challenges uh, in Africa at the moment? You're right. There's so many other ch challenges um, <clears throat> in Africa, whether you're looking at youth unemployment, whether it's uh, disease, and whether it's security issues. I think we have a security session after this. There are so many other challenges. So why infrastructure? Infrastructure has both a direct and indirect impact on other development issues. It's amazing. If you've traveled through Africa and you, you, you have seen the, or, or the kind of the assess the impact of a new road, what I call a new inclusive road. If you just build a tarred road in Africa through a poor rural district, you know what's going to happen? Over a five-year period, you find that villagers start moving closer to the road. If you build feeder roads, even better, then because then you're including the communities along the road, even, even school attendance starts going up. Children can get to school during a you know, a flooding season. Uh, you even find that the post-harvest losses from farmers 
drop because they can get their tomatoes to the market before they rot. Uh, they, they rot. So, so really, uh, uh, I'm using the road as an, as an example to show you what impact it has on, on schooling, on health, on you know, uh, uh, reducing poverty through agricultural productivity. Its impact is quite wide. Of course, we know that it reduces the cost of doing business, absolutely. Uh, and, and to go back to the, my first example, that's what you call a spatial inequality reduction. Infrastructure reduces spatial inequality. Uh, but also in the energy space, uh, infrastructure, if it's investment in power, that will you know, be, be helping firing up manufacturing. One of the biggest constraints in Africa in manufacturing is the cost of energy, is the reliability of energy. So more of energy, electricity, is, 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 a, is a good good thing. But also infrastructure is a source of technology. It, it creates jobs. It's not a lot of jobs, but quite a bit of jobs. So you can see it cuts across various development issues. Uh, uh, that's why we care about infrastructure. The gap is wide, uh, but I think that uh, it can be closed slowly. And finally, if it's done in an innovative way, with the financing of infrastructure is done in an innovative way, you can also use it to deepen capital markets. And I'll give an example of Kenya, who have issued a series of infrastructure bonds for financing infrastructure in Kenya, and that is helping deepening the bond market in, the, in that country. So it's, it's quite wide, that's why we care about infrastructure. Right, but Petulia, now that you've said that, obviously uh, roads or infrastructure is a lifeline, literally an economic lifeline for, for countries. Why hasn't the African uh, Union, uh, why haven't African countries then put infrastructure connectivity higher up on their agenda? The 2063 vision, for instance. They have. They uh, have. One of the pillars of the 2063 vision, which I, by the way, I helped craft in my previous life, the infrastructure is one of the key pillars. There is what you call the PIDA program. The, the program for infrastructure development in Africa, which is sponsored by the AU, the African Union, the African Development Bank is the secretariat. I used to manage the secretariat. And, and, and there they have identified a series of regional projects. Uh, uh, and these have been identified, costed, and so forth. I've actually, I was looking at the map just before I walked, and I said, my goodness. The African leaders are focused on this. But, but then what are the issues? Why isn't anything happening? It really, the, it's, a, it's an issue of uh, it's project preparation. One of the biggest impediments is project preparation. Well, for the whole of last week, I was in Dubai. We're busy trying to build a port in a country, African country, that will remain unmentioned. And what were we doing? Project preparation. How do you build a port? How deep? And all the engineers are there. And my job as an economist is to look at the impact of that port, the, the trade-free zones around it, because you have to enhance the economics around the port and so forth. So project preparation is key. And the other, which I'm, I'm, I'm hoping my colleagues could be able to add on this, is the, the, the impediment around infrastructure as an, as an asset class in investment. It's an issue. How can we make infrastructure an asset class? We have bonds, we have equities of this. So that, if we can figure that out, in my view, that would be a, a nice way to, to deal with some of those impediments. Right, so we'll come to that, and I think Allah wants to talk about it. But it is a question of, isn't it, it's a long-term investment, and the, and, and, the, and the paybacks are not very quick. Yeah, that's Absolute, essentially absolutely. a problem. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Mituri. You really set the tone for this discussion. Uh, Professor Hino, so... You are coming from Cape Town, and anyone who's read the headlines today knows that there is a major water shortage uh, in that region. 
And you yourself have done a lot of work. It's on, by the way, it's on. Uh, you've done a lot of work on water infrastructure. So just tell us a little bit of how important that is for you and for the communities you work in. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I uh, would like to focus on water. I know when you say infrastructure, probably you think about roads, energy, and so forth. But here I would like to stress and impress upon you how important water infrastructure is. Why? Because water is the most fundamental reason why poverty remains entrenched in Africa and why inequality between the poor people and rich people in Africa continue to widen. Let me give you one or two examples. One, do you know where Turkana, sorry, uh, 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 yeah, Turkana is in Kenya, up in north? That's where probably you, you come from, the cradle of mankind. There, if you go there, it's barren, right? You don't see green. And actually, people, because there is no, uh, no pasture to feed, to, to, to graze the cows, they burn acacia trees to make charcoal and sell. And that makes it actually worse, right? Because there be no tree cover. Burning hot, get dry. Top of it, Lake Turkana, water level keeps going down and down. And now it is projected that Asao area around Lake Turkana, Kenya, would expand by one third. And that's very serious, right? Now, can I, um, to save time, let me just give you a more example. Now, it's not only in those dry areas. The uh, uh, small island in uh, Madagascar called uh, Sampona, surrounded by ocean, obviously. But there, the children have to walk 20 kilometers to fetch water. Mm. Lots of water, but no water to drink or to cultivate. So. That is the reason. I can give you examples and examples, but you don't have time, right? Now, it's not that there is no water, that the, 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 the people do not have water. Actually, there's plenty of water all over the places. In arid areas we talk about, Turkana, in a study, remote sensing study, funded by Japan to UNESCO and conducted by French company, I think it's a French company. So they discovered deep aquifer, deep, only deep. And one of them, what they concentrated, Kenya, like two trillion mm -hmm. water. It's enough to feed, to give water all over. It's not only there, it's many other places in, in those arid areas. They find. So question is why can't one take the water out underground? It may be saline, it may be a bit of a bit of contamination. But we have technology to deal with it. So there is water. Right? Also, now you may 
it looks like there is no water, but there is a river, subterranean river going under. Yeah, like there is a big, big river actually. It becomes seasonal. So, again, the the uh, uh, there was a project done by the the uh, actually it was proposed by the Dutch to take that water from subterranean river, uh, 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 river into a dry area. Gravitation, just gravitation, pipeline to get there. But unfortunately, because politicians could not agree, they sort of you know, go forward with it. But now I understand that the, the Belgian government is uh, interested and actually uh, uh, indicated we need to finance it again or something. So again, that the uh, uh, <coughs> there's water, and this like, we're not talking about big water. Even just rains, actually, when it rains and rains, rains, it floods. It makes it worse. It kills people. What we don't know is how to tap the water to save. So, so, so professor, what is uh, Japan doing in this case? So, water is there. Uh, governance is perhaps not ideal, but is it the technology that is missing? Is it the is it are the projects as you said difficult to put together? The project planning isn't being done right. What is it? Well, the one is desalination. Technology. Yes, it's not a technology. I the the uh, it can be done in Japan actually without involving JICA or anybody, just to to uh, a, a, in Morocco, two private companies, the desalination plan. The uh, um, the uh, another company Toyota. To show the desalination plan in Kenya, it's all done on private sector initiative. Right. The, the the key issue, like in, in Cape Town as well, is the costing, because many people believe water is a human rights. It should be free, or almost free, correct? The uh, so it's difficult for people to charge for water. That, that, that make the, the project viable commercially. And the irony of it is in those poor places, like in Kenya areas, the water is sold for 40 shillings for 20 liter jerry can. That is 40 US cents. Can you, can, can you just for 20 liters. Can you imagine how big it is in relation to the people who earn a dollar or less that day? So that's the irony of it. Poor people actually pay. I mean, they, ha they have no choice. But that most other people say, oh, no, I, I don't want to, I cannot pay. That's why th those projects are not going forward. But you, Professor, you also talked about how Belgium, and you mentioned the Netherlands, I mean, countries. Are, there, are these projects being done, say, in tandem with Japan? Is there any work being done together by these two? The, the uh, Japan was... Uh, working on a, uh, um, a storing water underground. You know, because like in those hot areas, I understand the half of water lost is through evaporation because sun is so strong it's all the time. So if you can find a way of storing it underground. So there was a JICA project, uh, 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 um, which basically used those under, under, uh, under, underground rivers to fortify a little, make it bigger, to make a storage. But that was done, I think, on, on, on Japan, not, uh, without cooperation with uh, Europe. 
the cooperation with Europe, I know, is in the area of energy uh, uh, more than the, the water, uh, as far as I can tell for now. And there are examples of uh, co uh, uh, JICA, AFD, JICA, uh, uh, ZTZ, collaboration in geothermal, etc. In water, it doesn't come to my mind right away. Right, so, so something that can be explored in the future. And that to, me, to me, that is one thing I would like to really uh, encourage you to do, that water is a big, big, big issue. And it has to be focused. I understand why you want to do roads, the, 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 uh, energy, the power generation. Yes, and I understand it's necessary for growth. But there have been a lot of investment in those areas in the last 10 years. And the growth rate has been high, as you all know. But still, poverty, actually, in real sense, maybe, can I say it's getting worse? Today? that the uh, 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 depth of poverty, you know, the number of people who remain, who below $2, they're actually going up. Yeah. So something got to be. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much for drawing our attention to, you're right, an issue that perhaps gets lost when we talk about bridges and railways and airports and uh, ports and things. So thank you very much indeed for that, Danielle. Much appreciated. Uh, Francesca, let's talk uh, a little bit more in depth about uh, the funding gap for infrastructure, but also how Japan and the European Union are perhaps already working together. Where are the avenues that can be uh, explored further? Okay. Thank you. Um, yes, maybe perhaps to say, as you, as you said at the beginning, that EU-Japan relation on infrastructure are actually quite, quite active. I mean, there was a, a senior-level dialogue in May in Tokyo, which had as a theme infrastructure. And then again in September at the UNGA, the UN General Assembly, there was also a side event also co-organized with the UN, which was focusing on infrastructure. So, but of course, these are, let's say, are the high-level kind of uh, discussion, which we, re I, we really believe they have to be taken down at the much, you know, uh, local level. So be it at the regional level or uh, at the country level. And, I mean, the coordination at the country level is, in the end, what matters most. When people, you know, discuss projects, they don't discuss it, you know, in the, in the abstract uh, in New York. They have to discuss it where, where they have to, to take place. So we talked about the PIDA, which is the continental, uh, let's say, framework. And then, of course, the regional economic communities that are, you know, the eight RECs that are in the, in the architecture of the African Union, they, you know, they're basically supposed to implement. Maybe we can talk about how much they implement or how well they implement. But, of course, our, uh, you know, support also comes in support of them, of the regional economic community to implement the, let's say, the master plans that are then, you know, translated at the, at the regional level. So that's where, of course, in our dialogue at the regional level with the regional organization, we, I think, you know, can strengthen the, the, the coordination among all those partners that are active in infrastructure. So that's, you know, the case between EU and Japan, but then there's many others. Of course, IFDB is also another big partner. Um, Maybe just to give a few, a few, few numbers. I mean, and few, of course, uh, uh, scope of what we do. Possibly, you know, but just to say, in the past ten years, we've devoted around 25 to 30 percent of our all, let's say, our bilateral support or regional support to to Africa, to infrastructure. So that's around 14 billion dollars in the past ten years. Uh, that you know. 
you know, it basically comes also from a, a long history of us, uh, of the EU uh, supporting infrastructure, so it was just a continuation. But I would say that there was a little bit of a shift in terms of our many, many shift, if you want. One shift was in terms of sectors, whereby, uh, and again, we can talk about it with the introduction, with the venue of new emerging donors, let's say the transport sector saw a little bit of reduction. Uh, you know, the, 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 Yes, in our funding, yes, in our funding. Uh, and the big, actually, increase in some of maybe the, the, the bigger, uh, the big hot topics like energy. So now energy, you know, we devote 60% uh, to energy and 30% to transport. But I would like to really say that all of this does not include all the small infrastructure that we haven't yet talked about, for example, in agriculture sector, that are critical for uh, the feeder roads may be, you know, part of these numbers. But when we think, you know, markets, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do you call it, uh, abattoir, uh, you know, uh, slaughterhouse, yes, I mean, all of these small infrastructure that are critical for the productive productivity and for the production capacity of those countries, they're not part of those numbers. But that means that you know, there's a whole set of uh, smaller infrastructure. And again, we're not even speaking about uh, urban infrastructure, you know, that, uh, you know, that uh, urban development that is also coming up. If you look at the demography of Africa, you, you have to realize that, of course, people will move to cities, so we'll have to really see how that, those plans uh, are, are prepared. Um, but, of course, the other, I think, realization we have is that public funding is not going to be enough. You know, we, we talked about FTI, but we also realized that uh, if we want to go for, you know, the growth and the jobs type of uh, concept, of course, the private investment must, must come in. And that's, you mentioned it already, and, you know, we, 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 as, uh, you know, we, we all uh, promote it very much, is the new uh, EU external investment plan. I can go into detail later if, if you have questions, but basically, you know, we look at... Uh, the finance of how we can blend our grant money with, you know, with the financier money uh, in terms of blending, but also we've introduced a novelty, which is the possibility of a guarantee. So let's say the idea is really to bring in the private investors in, and, and we know very well, I mean, I deal personally with Central Africa. So Central African countries, you can be sure that private investors are not going to, you know, rush to get into, uh, you know, uh, some of uh, the countries I'm responsible for. Um, but if you perhaps, you know, are able, you know, to de-risk the investment by introducing a guarantee, then, you know, th this is a bit our objective. Uh, and then, of course, I fully agree with Dooley, we need to have the proper uh, facilities for preparing the projects. And, you know, the whole issue of technical assistance and having a proper design phase is critical. I mean, the design phase, it's, it's, it's important design is critical. And I, again, would say that the way we look at, uh, you know, uh, studies, of course, have to also incorporate the environmental impact, the social impact, economic impact, all of this. Of course, we have higher standards, but, you know, that's also part of the sustainability of, uh, of the investment. And then, of course, the EIP will also look at, you know, uh, the whole policy dialogue around how can we actually bring private investors if we, can, if we don't have a business environment that is conducive to that private investment. So that's a little bit our, our shift also of saying we cannot just put grant money and public money only. We need to, to blend. 
Just a parenthesis on what you mentioned on, on water and sanitation. I mean, indeed, we, we are now preparing a program for water sanitation in Jamena. It is not easy to bring in the private investors in, in that sector. I mean, the, the capacity to pay is extremely low. So we are basically putting uh, basically 100% grant money into this. But we believe it's important to do water and sanitation because of all the things that, uh, that you mentioned. Uh, we can maybe go back to governance issues uh, yeah. later. Uh, j j just just say yes, in, in terms of governance, and governance, I mean, and that's an, another shift I would say we're also more and more applying is that it's not just the quantity and the volume of uh, you know infrastructure, but it's the quality. And the quality, of course, goes with the design. But I would say even before the design, it starts with the prioritization. So. We have the PIDA, and then at country level, then again, you may even need to go a bit further, you know, a bit deeper. And everything, let's say, related to public investment management is, is critical. I mean, we, we had periods where we had this prestige investment of a bridge in the middle of nowhere, of, you know, a new capital in the middle of the desert. Um, I'm not, uh, so, so let's say ex ante, we need to ensure that the investment that uh, those countries are going to, uh, even get indebted for are worthful. You know, they're, 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 they have to be uh, economically viable, they have to bring, you know, uh, returns, but, but also they, they have to, yeah, you have to ensure that they're sustainable. So that's, you know, ex ante. But then, of course, the whole issue of design, the whole issue of good execution, you know, because, you know, they have to be done at the, at the proper, uh, also with a fair competition, with a fair, you know, procurement process. And, of course, you know, the last but not least, the whole maintenance issue, which is still extremely critical, where you still see maybe fund, you know, roads that we have perhaps built 20 years ago, and then with the idea that perhaps, you know, government was going to pick up the cost, that maybe have not happened. So what we're also uh, pushing a lot is the whole issue about domestic revenue mobilization and ensuring that the government also have that capacity, you know, to, to, to raise revenue so as to pay at least for the recurrent cost. Right. I, I, yeah. right. So a lot maybe of lessons learned from yeah. past mistakes, and we've all yes. seen these, you know, white elephants uh, thing coming up across uh, Africa that you know, are either empty or can't function because of the maintenance problems. So lessons learned. Ada, so we've talked a lot about private investments and you know, the obstacles, the impediments, but also the hesitation they have because some of the countries don't really have the kind of business climate that is conducive to investment. What are your experiences? Well, interestingly enough, we were actually set up as a private vehicle to invest in infrastructure in Africa, but not just invest in existing infrastructure, create infrastructure that we can bring in other investors into it. So hearing everyone in this panel, which is reassuring on so many levels on, to a certain extent on to the infrastructure as an asset class and what is the capital gaps that are missing in there and how do we unlock that value. So from a practical experience that we've gone in and I, taking Africa into one example is slightly misleading because there are 54 countries, they have different problems, they have different challenges within each one of the countries and it's trying to find a solution that fits all across the continent is slightly difficult. Uh, just like you would fit one solution for all of Asia. But taking the example 
as we tried to develop across the continent. And we were country agnostic. We were technology agnostic. Uh, we did have standards what we were complying by IFC standards, the Equator Principle, World Bank Standard. But the true challenge came from two fundamental things that perhaps Nakubi uh, referred to, uh, Professor Hino referred to, I think everyone on this, even Francesca referred to in this panel in different ways, which is ultimately what is the financing gap and how is the lead time to get the project done? So I'll give an example with the latter, which is the lead time to get a project done. If I wanted to develop a project in, say, Asia, it would take me, on average, three to four years. If I wanted to develop a project in Africa, it takes me seven to ten years. That's a fundamental difference in lead time. And the appetite of capital to to last that long, and I'm not talking about a project that's already built. I'm talking a project from concept to completion. It's a long time. So you have to have a specific type of appetite and capital that's allowed for that. In addition to that, and perhaps ref not necessarily referring it specifically to the uh, power market, but we invest in energy in particular. But actually, energy is fundamental for water. Desalinization's cost is fundamentally energy cost, and it's fundamental as an asset class for that. So having the experience of going through a fundamental asset class that actually countries need, so they usually tend to be collaborative in trying to get their energy needs in place, despite or in spite of that, you see a huge gap in the credit market. So it's not for lack of capital. There is capital. There is very specific capital that is readily available for equity. There is a different capital for DFIs, for grants. There are different capitals for uh, coming in as debt. However, to get the countries that don't have a credit rating to have access to that capital, one, the investors want a much higher return on their investment. They're saying, well, I can go to Asia with a much higher credit rating and get my 15%. I'm very happy. Even my 10%, I'm happy. But in Africa, I want 20 and 30% plus. To get that return means it's an additional cost to the continent, but it also means a fundamental thing that my credit rating in the country, my cost of debt is so much more expensive. Yes, it's readily available. Actually, DFIs have been institutional in trying to unlock that capital market, that debt market. But it's time for the private investors to come in. And the private investors have been readily waiting for that reform for them to come in and put in that capital. And coming back to the difference where that credit rating or that credit enhancement, whether initiatives like yours with the guarantee, that actually helps fundamentally unlocking value. As a practical example of where we saw that value being unlocked with a collaboration between Japan and Europe. We've seen it in JPEG with Paparco's partnership in Morocco. We've seen it in JPEG's participation in Kenya. We've seen it in projects where uh, export credit agencies have come in and made the project far more competitive from a, from a cost perspective for the country, from a return perspective for the investors, from a debt perspective for the lenders. So it made the entire project unlock a value that it's hard to unlock. And with time, actually, and Kenya is a, it's a great example that Nakubo refers to, with time, when you see that the participation of agencies like that, specifically in Japan, where they had been an instrumental role in Kenya's economy for different reasons. They had a particular interest in that. You see a capital market that develops. So Kenya is one of the first countries in Africa which has a, a side of South Africa, which I would put in a different category, but that you see a capital market issuing infrastructure bonds. That's huge. 
And that's unlocking value and bringing not just direct investment into the market, but using local capital to fund itself and make it much more sustainable on the long term. And if you compare just purely Western world or even other emerging markets on where they see their infrastructure cost fares worth Africa, there is still a big gap to be managed. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to turn to uh, you for your comments and questions to the panel. But just before I do that, so put your thinking caps on, please, and get your questions uh, ready. I'm just going to go back to Julie to uh, comment on what you've heard from the other panelists. I mean, you've been in the driving seat at the African Development Bank for five years. Uh, and as you said, you've played a big role in Agenda 2063. When you hear the different challenges that our panelists are talking about, but also the opportunities, what what, what is your uh, insight? What is your view? Speaking to this, gadget. Just really to agree with my colleagues, I, the, the issues they, they raise, we've encountered these issues, I've worked with some of them, uh, absolutely. And maybe just to highlight one or two other issues. The issue about about low public investment by African governments and infrastructure. What's going on? In fact, what's going on is really the, the public debt levels. The public debt levels are rising in Ghana, even in Kenya, South Africa, Angola. The, the debt levels are rising, and this is worrying. So it is limiting their capacity to invest more uh, uh, in, in, in infrastructure. And, and that, these that, debt levels are rising because of other projects, other uh, commitments? Because of other commitments, including, including recurrent expenditure. Without shaming any government, there are some that have been borrowing for consumption uh, uh, because maybe the fiscal pressures here and there, but, but, but public debt is rising, so that's one constraint. Number two, uh, just to mention one thing, the issue of public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. That you find that in these governments, the PPP units, if they exist at all, they have weak capacity to initiate and to negotiate projects. And not just talk about government, but also in the private sector. The African private sector has some weaknesses. There are few skills that can initiate and, and launch and, and conceive projects as well. So you have capacity shortages in both the private sector in Africa as well as the, 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 the government. I just wanted to, to, to bring those, 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 those issues up. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, let me now open the floor to questions and comments from yourself. So just put up your hands. We have colleagues with uh, broken microphones, and uh, our panelists will take your questions. So please, uh, the lady over here, could uh, uh, yeah, could you bring the microphone here? Thank you very much. I'm Francois Jacob with uh, UNOPS, so the uh, UN agency in, with a core mandate on infrastructure. Thank you. Um, it's uh, almost hard to add anything, but I will try. Uh, so we, we have implemented or, or, or guided or supported many infrastructure projects in, uh, in, uh, in Africa. And I'll keep my comments on a bit on the pragmatic level. Um, what we see very much is, first, um, infrastructure systems are more than just assets. They are about assets, knowledge, and institutions. And we still have a tendency for medium-sized and large infrastructure to consider just the asset itself. And institutions and, and the, the, the focus on institution and on, uh, on knowledge is equally important and has a cost as well. Uh, the second thing is um, on, uh, on governance and financing. Um, I really like what has been said on prioritization. Um, and what we've seen is 
uh, I just came from several years in South Asia, and, and there ministries of finance typically will tell me most of our infrastructure projects are 50% more expensive and they are 100% delayed. Like the, the time frame for execution is at least 100% more. So um, we are wasting a lot of money just there, right? Because as, as at least two or three of you have already said, um, the, the preparation is just not good enough. Um, and so I think we, we need to put a lot of joint effort on this preparation, but also on, on priorities, on real priorities. I think you, some of you may know the, the famous or the infamous airport in the south of Sri Lanka that ended up being, becoming a, a storage space for rice grain. Um, and, and that's really, you know, it's best white elephant uh, uh, or big elephant example. Um, one more point on... Um, Again, on financing and on coordination related to the financing, um, I think there is a lot of projects. In every country, there is a lot of various projects going on. Not always good coordination between the financing entities and also the implementing entities. And this coordination has to come... It cannot come from us or, or even from the EU. It has to come from apex ministries, from ministries of finance, from ministries of planning, or whatever, a core ministry. And that sometimes we don't put enough attention to it. So we believe that we also need to have a, a bit of a whole-of-government approach where for any set of infrastructure or, in, or particular infrastructure system, we really put together, we make an effort to put together the different financing entities um, the ministry that will execute, the ministry that will use, um, and the, the, the finance ministry. Finally, one point we haven't raised at all is on disaster risk reduction. We know infrastructure actually creates uh, disasters, but I think maybe somebody else in the room will pick this up. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So do you want to come back to what the UN body has said about the different perspectives? I mean, you have the whole of government approach. I mean, this is a little bit, the, you know, the bread and butter of what we've been doing when we were doing, you know, infrastructure support, which at the beginning, let's say, was very much in the in the form of a project, but then we even moved, you know, into sector budget support uh, in the road sector, and that always, always came with support to the sector ministry, and uh, in terms of, you know, policy and in terms of uh, regulatory policy. So that that was uh, always, you know, the uh, you know the, the effort we made. Uh, our main counterpart when we also do budget support is the Ministry of Finance. So that was, you know, the, the idea was also very much to encourage, you know, the, the dialogue between the finance ministry and the ministry and, you know, the, the, the sector ministry. So, but, but, of course, we have also to bear in mind that, okay, Africa is not all, all over the same, but when, when you know, in, in, in countries where we operate in large amount is also quite, you know, weak institutions. So, so you need really a lot of time to build the capacity of the ministries to, to do that coordination. Inter-ministerial coordination, I would say, is one of the biggest challenges uh, we have in general in our policy dialogue. You know, I think uh, the, we have to talk about an elephant which is not in this room, which is China. Now, you all talk about slow, difficult, etc., but look at China. You know, they've, they did from Ethiopia down to Djibouti. 
w a t e r pipeline, gravity, boom. And that is helping Djibouti so fundamentally, right? And it did not take eight years to do that. They're dealing with the same government. Kenya, the same. That the, the, I was in Kenya as advisor to, to the, the prime minister and the president for a long time. That the, 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 they say, oh, well, maybe you say uh, the quality of China thing maybe not be as good. Maybe that's right. But, you know, they can get it done in two years for, for us. But for you guys, it takes 15 years. So we do not want to wait 15 years. So when you talk about taking time, et cetera, et cetera, I think we have to also think back as to what is the difference. Yes, they have money. They come with money and so forth. But that's not the only thing, right? And that the... That, yes, they deal with the same so-called weak institutions you talk about. I was in those weak institutions. I know what they can do, what they cannot do. It's not that bad as Kenya and South Africa is concerned. But, so let's, the, the, what I'm trying to say here now is that, yes, I mean, if we talk about the projects funded by America and so forth, it takes forever. I, I mean, that's forever, of course, but that's, it takes a long, long time. Japan takes time, yeah? But somebody else can do it much quicker, and that is what is appreciated by many, many African governments, and that is why Africa is becoming so dominant. We're dominated by China all over. I mean, that's the reality. So that the, I think it's time to reflect upon ourselves, us here, I'm talking about Japanese, or maybe Europeans, is there a way for us to be able to assist or work with Africans in a way things can be done more, done more quickly with quality assured, with environmental standard assured? It can be done. But there are many things which, in my view, like OECD, DAC, all the standards and that stuff, that is binding everybody so bad. Because, you know, the, the purpose, if I can take one more minute, all this, the, the OECD coordination, Japan, basically Japanese-European coordination, the purpose was basically to make sure they are fair to each other between sort of donors, Okay, that's all right as long as there was no, no one to come and compete with you. But once China enters, once India enters, then the rule of the game changes. And those rules have to be updated. The OECD, DAC rules have to be updated, but they haven't done. And so many, in many ways, unnecessary to me, in my view, not really essential, essential thing, that constrain and delay things because you have to go through all these procedures, right? So I am not, I don't think it's just, I mean, it's perfectly, I don't think it's 100% right to say, oh, weak institutions. There is something else that I think we have to think ourselves. Sorry, you want to say? And what is, is that something else, Professor? Is there a fear of risk? 
Risk aversion, people are not willing to take the risk. What is that other thing? You said something else is going on. It's not just the weak institutions, we're not there, we're not, you know. No. Just very quickly, did you say Corruption, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy? Sorry? Bureaucracy? I mean, the, 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 uh, I mean, let's face it, I think uh, I, it's for, for our own governance in Japan, there are a lot of things we have to go through. Yes? That's the, the, the nothing wrong with it. The, uh, I think the, uh, uh, in terms of risk taking, the, uh, let me just digress a little. You know, all people talk about Japan's industrial uh, uh, policy you know, that uh, METI, feared METI, you know, that's why Japan developed. In my view, the, what METI did, what Japanese government did, was to help private enterprises look long-term. They gave long-term financing. They assisted in research and development. And that allowed all these companies to think ahead, and they gave protection for a while, because without having those long-term views, in a way, very difficult for the, the enterprises to just grow out and raise money. So, the, the, um, and raise, I'm making this example to say that one thing uh, which all would appreciate is that for a major industry, to mature, it takes time. It involves risk, for anybody to involve risk. And to ask private sector to take all of that risk, difficult, or may become very expensive. So that's why, as I say in the case of Japan, there's a role, proper role, for the private sector to make it easier for them to look long-term and be assured. Okay? So, again, there are many other things that we can talk about, but that's... I'd like to say, you know, Professor has talked about uh, upgrading the rules, uh, or, or updating, sorry, sorry, updating the rules. It's actually an interesting comment because Francesca alluded to it earlier and several panels made, made comment to it. Lessons learned. What can we learn from successes and what can we learn from failures and how do we use that to better our solution? And perhaps addressing the professor's comment of why China can be better or quicker uh, at addressing the problem is uh, we've dealt with this on a regular basis in different countries. China comes in in a one-stop solution. I go to China, I get the construction company, I get China Shores with a guarantee, I get extra credit rating for my debt, I get cheaper financing, all in one stop. Once I have a Chinese company, it's all one stop. Now, in addition to that, they have a bilateral treaty or they have some collaboration with the government that makes the government more willing and facilitates an expedited process that it would take me to get my environmental approval on a normal basis a year. This might be a lot quicker, but not necessarily because they're bypassing the process, but there is much more willingness within the stakeholders. And to the earlier comment on collaboration and uh, using the institutions, it's all about stakeholder management. How do we make the stakeholders work more efficiently together, more 
seamlessly together and having the same objective in mind. The lenders are worried about ensuring that their risk is mitigated, is reduced to almost nothing. The equity investors are looking for their returns to be invested. The government is actually worried fundamentally on what the IMF levels are and what their debt exposure and contingent liability is. And the bigger overriding situation across all of it is OECD limits, where it limits countries, and specifically actually Japan and Europe, to invest in certain countries. They reach the OECD limit for that country. They cannot put more investment in that country. Not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, a parameters in which working with the OECD levels for that particular country. So you have to shift and work within those rules. China doesn't seem to necessarily be restrained by these kind of parameters. Uh, so it makes them much more free in approaching that. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Yes, China has done it quicker, but they are now facing the challenges of more developed economies. And you see the Chinese investment that perhaps before were pouring into the continent without asking for much. Now Sinashore is saying, well, actually, do you have an export credit agency from Europe or US to partner with us? So the fact that they're bringing that into the equation fundamentally changes the game. And I think Francesca's comment and solution about providing that guarantee, that additional support, is trying to get one step closer to breaching that gap. Mm -hmm. So the game is changing. China's learned some learning, and some harsh lessons uh, about the real world outside. Uh, uh, right. Uh, I, have to, I mean, I have many questions for you, but I'd like to, uh, sir, and of course, anyone? Yes, please. So let's have you start first. No, well, uh, excuse me. This gentleman over here, and then the gentleman over there. Well, thank you. It is just to complete what... Can you just identify yourself, uh, sir? Okay. Uh, with Abdullah. No, the point I, I, I'm trying to say about Chinese investment. Uh, first, China has a huge surpluses, financial surpluses. You know, it is in the trillions, and uh, they don't have the same procedure as in OECD countries. Uh, second, the, one of the costs of doing business in a, from number of institutions, including Europe, is the cost of studies. You know, it takes too much time to prepare a project, whereas sometimes in China and, you know, it in Kobe, the same project is just adapted. So it costs uh, cost much less to, to do it in West Africa, in Central Africa. It, they adjust just to, to the climate and, uh, and, uh, and, and so on. And they have direct access to, to, to power. Uh, I mean, people who make decisions very often at one point, uh, and increasingly, Ch Chinese private sector, it is not only ambassador or government, they have direct access to partnership, and this accelerates uh, uh, things. Funding, as I said, is huge. And uh, in, uh, finally, and it is very important, they are ready to invest and be paid in kind. In kind, so it is not necessarily they can be paid back minerals. in uh, minerals, in fish, in uh, whatever, in wood, and, and so on. And the point, uh, final point, is this situation has to be reviewed by African partner, because to to have only uh, Africa with one partner, and, and far going, is 
um, dangerous for that partner and dangerous for, for African because you have less choice. But where we are now, it is very difficult to do anything if China is interested because surplus, effectiveness, and if they want, if there is no corruption, top quality. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, so you're the president of the Centre Stratégie pour la Sécurité du Sahel. Uh, thank you very much for intervening. Please, sir. Yes, absolutely. I didn't recognize you. Hello, my name is Yves Laurent, and I'm an independent journalist. I would like to ask questions to Mr. Hino. Uh, you've been complaining about the fact that Chinese is dominant in uh, in Africa. Ah, okay. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. But you talked about uh, China, uh, the dominant uh, presence of China uh, in Africa. But uh, from the perspective of the Congo, the DR Congo, Japan has been there uh, in the past, in the late 60s. And actually, we have like uh, good infrastructures. Uh, the Japanese bridge, we call it, in Congo, which is really um, pe peculiar, but interesting. And the other side, <laughs> but it's still there, so it's, it's a really good infrastructure. Japan uh, is no, can, be, can be recognized for, for that. And the other side, I, um, in the southeast, uh, Japan exploited uh, like minerals and communities. Would it be fair to develop like a project there due to the some consequences they had uh, there because uh, some engineer in Japan from Japan uh, had some children there and uh, when they left they tried to erase their trace by killing those child so yeah but just just about uh, developing the, would it be fair to develop This is my. Uh, oh, okay. That's fine. Professor, do you want to comment on this? I mean, I've never heard this. Or... But uh, my question is, why did you left? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> DRC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> uh, the, the, I don't, the, the, the DRC, uh, um, the, I haven't been there for many years. Uh, the, it's not to, it, 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 if, uh, um, the, uh, the, so my compatriots were there for the, uh, uh, the mining and that, uh, if that surrounding area because of security concern, it became difficult to operate, that, uh, uh, it's kind of difficult to, 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 to tell them they just have to stay. In Japan, I tell you, I say JICA, if a JICA employee was, if, eh, killed, right, while working in Africa duty, I'm sure JICA president has to resign immediately. I'm sure of it. Now, if he stopped with JICA, I do not know. Now, sense of the, the responsibility for the security of the people who are working for the institution is that is paramount. Um, it's not a matter of financial risks, of course, that's one thing, but matter of sort of risk in terms of your own life, people's life, 
then you need to have a different kind of look at it. I would like very much to be able to 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 uh, to, to help the RSC work with the RSC. The um, uh, from the distance, and I think I looked at once in the case of this Chinese, uh, the famous case of uh, the Chinese investment and so forth. But that the uh, uh, in the mines, how you got the famous story. Um, uh, um, but for uh, for now, the, the 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 in terms of general understanding of situation is not really conducive uh, for uh, yeah it, it will be very difficult even for EU to mitigate that risk probably. Right. <laughs> and we, we we will talk about the security issues in, a, in, a, in a another episode. But thank you for that question and thank you very much, Professor, for the response. I'd like to take a few other questions, please. Yes. Thank you. Good evening. Um, Lizzie Donnelly from the Africa Programme at Chatham House in London. Thank you very much for, for sharing your insights with us this evening. Um, just a, a couple of things, because you know, you've all been thinking about infrastructure development in Africa for a while, and I just wanted to get a clearer sense of, you know, broadly speaking, um, in terms of capacity and political will, are things moving in the right direction? We sometimes hear mixed messages on this um, in terms of some enhanced capacity in some areas, then again mounting debt and maybe you know, money not spent in, in the right way. So just to get a sense with you, is, are things moving in the right direction in, in terms of African governance? Um, and are perceptions outside of Africa keeping up with that change? Um, and the second thing I wanted to ask was about maintenance. And in all of these, these um, uh, programs and plans, is enough emphasis being put on development of local capacity for maintenance of infrastructure, whatever the size of the project? Thank you. Thank you very much. Would you like to take that up? So, so, pro, so political will on the ground for infrastructure. Certainly, the, if you compare now to, let's say, 10 years ago, there's a higher level of uh, uh, stronger political will. First of all, starting at the African Union level, at the continental level, we talked about the PIDA program. And then I, if I recall that President Zuma uh, was asked to chair the cluster on infrastructure development for, for the whole of Africa. The, uh, Vision 2063 has an infrastructure pillar. And also the work done by the African Development Bank in terms of infrastructure really points to that level of consciousness. So there's no question about commitment in that continental level. At country level, if you check in all these countries, you always find some kind of plan, vision 2030, vision 2050. If you go in there, you find that infrastructure is, is explicitly, expressly mentioned. And some of the countries have got an infrastructure development plan. Yeah. In fact, I helped uh, Nigeria put up one together. Yeah put one together. So, so, so there's no question about, about, about commitment. The issue has been capacity, financial as well as skills capacity. That, 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 that is, the, is, is the issue. And is the same level of, is, do you have, are, you, are you getting a high level of, of, of awareness from the outside and commitment? Yes, absolutely. That's why we are, we are here talking about it. That's already saying that the outside world is thinking seriously about, about uh, infrastructure in Africa. 
uh, the, the, the second issue is on, on, um, on maintenance. Not enough emphasis is placed on maintenance, absolutely. We think about the initial road, power, or whatever, but the maintenance costs are not, are not uh, are costed. If, it, if it, I know it, even at the African Development Bank, will approve a, a sector project for whatever infrastructure, it's about that initial infrastructure and not the maintenance thereafter, which can be very costly financially, skill-wise, and that's a gap. And in fact, when we talk about the infrastructure gap in Africa, often that excludes maintenance. It talks about the initial investment, but not maintenance. So, so there's, a, there's a clearly a kind of schizophrenia in the way we discuss this subject. But, um, Julie, so to come back to Europe uh, and, and Japan working together in Africa, could these be, and also for you, Francesca, uh, could these be the kinds of issues that you could together focus on to, to change the dynamics on, on the I, I agree with you. I think this is a gap. This is an opportunity that uh, Japan and Europe could work together on in, in help, helping Africa. Absolutely. So capacity yeah. building, maintenance yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and where else do you think there is potential for you know countries that are like-minded, working within the OECD, bound by the same kind of rules and, and principles, where else can there be a potential for real synergy? I think in the area of, uh, of cross-border infrastructure. I mean, JICA has done an excellent job with one-stop border POS, for instance. Some of you know the Gazungula Bridge in Southern Africa, uh, Chirundu Bridge and, and other, other one-stop border POS. So the issue of just connecting countries, that soft infrastructure, so both maintenance, as we say, then the soft infrastructure, that's an area for potential collaboration. Um, yes, I mean, at least what I've seen was indeed that uh, perhaps JICA was picking up the, the one-stop border post, the post that uh, around, the, let's say, the, the Comesa area, and we were ensuring that you know, perhaps the road after that border post was also rehabilitated. So you, you, you need to really work into segment of, you know, and dividing up a little bit along the corridors what, who is doing what. And, you know, and of course, the issue, the, the, issue, the challenge there is in terms of timing again, but people because perhaps some parts are going to be ready before and, and others afterwards. So in terms of synchronization of, you know, starting the works uh, at the right time, is, it's, it's perhaps still somewhere where we can, uh, we can improve. I, I, I just wanted to pick up a little bit on, uh, on, on your question on um, what are the big trends. I mean, may, maybe just it's difficult, of course, to say is, uh, you know, governance improving overall in Africa. But in terms of little trends that one can highlight is, of course, indeed, I agree, the fact that in every single uh, vision, you know, document that you find, you find actually transformation, economic transformation, industrialization. So industrialization clearly needs infrastructure in terms of transport and it needs energy. So uh, in terms of perhaps the liberalization, you know, of the markets, perhaps there I think we can see something that has, is, is happening at, at the regional level. And I would say amazingly, even in a country such as a DRC, the market in energy is liberalized. So anybody can actually uh, produce energy. I can, you know, give you a little example of something that we are funding in the east, uh, north, uh, northeastern part of the country, North Kivu, 
where, you know, is around the National Park of Virunga, where amazingly, in a beacon of, uh, one would have said, instability, you know, we managed to have a little hub of uh, an energy production, which, of course, has an impact on, you know, agriculture and uh, manufacturing and so on. So, so it is possible even to work, you know, in, in difficult countries in, in that area. But uh, the other big trend, of course, is, uh, you know, the oil drop and, and the number of countries in Africa who were basically you know, living on, you know, the rents of, of the oil uh, bonanza and perhaps spending on prestige projects. I come back to that, uh, to this issue of the prestige project. Now they don't have the fiscal space to do it anymore. So they really have to, you know, to, 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 to shrink, to tighten up and to really say the ministers of finance these days, they really have to say, okay, you Ministry of Agriculture, of Transport, you're proposing this project. I really need to see what, you know, what I can afford it. And we go back, it goes back to the sustainability. So, so there, uh, you, you, you may know that, for example, the IMF has introduced this uh, tool, with this assessment tool, diagnostic called PIMA, which is a public investment management assessment. And, for example, in Af we, we very much support that, you know, in, in, in our uh, public finance, uh, you know, dialogue with those governments. In Africa, there's like 12 countries that have actually done this assessment. But, but it's something that can really help to identify, you know, uh, do you have a manual that looks at, you know, your project, a cost-benefit analysis, is it part of an analysis of your constraints and so on. So, okay. yes. Uh, Virginia, I'm just going to take two more questions. Uh, could we take our microphone over there, please? Second row, the lady in blue. Uh, good evening. I am from Sierra Leone. And uh, mostly Sierra Leone is a small country in Africa. And most times you go to big meetings, they talk about Africa. It's the big countries that are mentioned, South Africa and Kenya and the rest. But my question is, when development partners go to Africa, I would want to know what um, criteria that, that they set for working or supporting the um, countries, knowing that we are at different economic level, our needs are different. For example, my country we've been fighting with electricity for, 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 for ages, um, unemployment. So this development, do you think... It's, 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 it's working. Do you right. consider the sustainability of this development or you go in with your machines and your technical know-how, build the bridge of the road and then you move out and five years later we are where we started. So what criteria do you set? And again, you work directly with the government. What about the people? Mm -hmm. how, how, how do I know that my country, Ceylon, for instance, has taken a loan from ADB, and what are the conditions? All these are not known, known to the people, so we can't hold our government's Thank feet you. to the fire. They are not accountable to the people. It's between themselves and the big donors. Thank you very Thank much. You. Uh, two very important uh, points of view, and I think that's very important. And I wanted to uh, talk, if you could pick that up, about small versus bigger countries. Are we putting all our eggs in the big baskets? Uh, it's hard for me to comment on the donors, so uh, apologies. I don't no, know what their criteria your... is. Uh, but at the big versus small countries, uh, we actually have projects on both. And it hasn't been uh, actually including Sierra Leone. We looked into it, but it was for different reasons. The lead time, the, the political movement was just not 
suitable for our type of investors. Having said that, we have a project in Guinea, and surprisingly, it's going the fastest that we've ever heard across. And this is a fundamental difference where it's not about the big countries versus the small countries. It's about the willingness of the leadership of that country, the willingness of the government that gets involved, and how badly do they need that power or infrastructure? And how are they willing to go through the process? And taking an example of small country we're working with, as I mentioned, it was a learning experience for them. But there was a fundamental willingness to want to produce that project for the people. Mm -hmm. So, And it was it's really initiated from the government, no, not necessarily from the private sector. Private sector was facilitating. Now, things may change, and it might be a different situation, but the, trying to get everyone to the waterhole at the same time is truly stakeholder management and making sure everyone works together to complete that. Mm -hmm. In that same project versus bigger countries, the idea of it was local community engagement. The community knew what we were doing ahead of the project. It was involved in all of the stages when we did the analysis. They, there was a set program that sets forth how the community is going to be engaged, what are they going to do afterwards, what learning skills and scholarship and so on and so forth, development, uh, so CSR activities. But by the same token, is it was customized to the needs of that specific country. And the customization was mm -hmm. fundamental. We understood that their debt is an issue, that we understood that their IMF problem is an issue, and we understood that their fiscal policies need to be catered to. And a solution that came with an infrastructure solution to cater to that. Right. And the same thing happens for bigger countries, except now you have bigger stakeholders, different stakeholders. So not necessarily one versus another. The only thing I would add to that is the differences in a smaller country. There is far less capacity that you would bear. If I build 1,000 megawatts versus 50, for my investor, they're saying, we're spending the same amount of money. Right. Build the 1,000. Don't build the 50. But we've seen where the 50 had made a fundamental difference, difference to the country, right. where, the, where the 50 is the part that changes the world, not the 1,000. Right. And that's actually with the engagement of the government and the involvement of the stakeholders. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I can pass it on to the DFIs to answer your question. Yeah, I'm just going to ask a Professor, but first I just want to ask Matuli as well. Is that also an area, the local community engagement, you know, what about the people? Is that also something that Japan and Europe uh, would, would be more, let's say, apt to do than, say, uh, another leading, you know, India or China or Korea, for instance? I don't know. I'm just saying. My experience with uh, engaging communities, which where I think Europe and Japan could work together to support is supporting the CSOs, the civil society organizations on the ground. On the ground. In fact, I used to run the AFDB annual meetings through part of my portfolio. Very stressful, I tell you. <laughs> so, and we had a, a session with CSOs. Absolutely. We had to create that session. And I must say, donors like Francesca used to insist that we must have those sessions, and that's a good thing. So I would say that maybe that's the angle, supporting those civil society activists to say, open up the books. What's the interest rate on the AFDB loan? We want to know. And you demand that, and we have, we have no choice. We have to tell you. Mm. So I, I think that's a, that, 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 that would be the route to go. Hino mm. san um, Thank you. A few, few things. One, that the... Um, Serion and engagement. I, I love Serion. I I devoted 
four years of my life on Sierra Leone, working for the IMF, 1984 to 88. I'm not sure if you're born. Yeah. <laughs> under President Momo. That's the most miserable situation, I think you agree. Right? The, no one was dealing with it because Sierra Leone was not paying anybody. Areas, no rice, no nothing, right? But we got in. I was uh, leading IMF work. Spent four years uh, trying to get the Syrian on its own footing as best as we can. It was not a, a approach was certainly very different from dealing with big countries. But what I can say is that. There is clearly, it's been some time since I left IMF, but I'm sure, speaking for the staff of the IMF, there is a weakness and awareness that each country is different, mm -hmm. and each country's situation has to be approached differently. This stereotype of uh, IMF have one size fit all thing, mm -hmm. Uh, from my perspective, it's not right. From my own experience, it's not right. Is that right. changing? Hmm? That's changing. I think it has been uh, the, the uh, uh, change. So this is, the, the, I can speak to you a lot more about Sierra Leone. I can spend five days with you. Well, maybe, maybe However, Professor, <laughs> well, that's, yes, that's a but nice now that, uh, But what I want to say now for you <laughs> is that the... Uh, um, there's a willingness and the most miserable and difficult situation in the country's history at the moment right. that we, 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 we engaged right. and tried to do something. Okay, then I know what happened since the SSSHR. Right. So, Professor, two, we, we, yes, if you could move, move on, because I, I want to take one more question. And there's a reception where you can have a glass of so, okay, wine so, with the wonderful num lady over there. So. Uh, number two, again, yeah. I think about uh, engaging with community, just yeah. one, one example I tell you. When I brought the managing director of the IMF to Nigeria, okay, um, before he went, he said, I wanted to meet with women's group. Okay. And we organized it. There came like 20, 30 very imposing looking Nigerian ladies. Enjoyed. And he said, after the many, many meetings we had, he said, Hiro, the best meeting I had in Nigeria was that with those ladies. Because it produced effective uh, he contributions? Understood. He understood, okay. He understood what the issues were. Right. And that right. everywhere he went, he insisted, as far as the places I went with him, having that engagement at that level. Right. Okay. Now, the, uh, um, I could give, because there's no time, I could speak to you about this uh, maintenance issue, the, uh, um, a, a, where it comes from, it's, uh, um, and how it has been, at least from the road sector, how it has been dealt with in many ways. That the, uh, um, speak with you after this uh, uh, the, how, how it, yeah, so he's uh, going to have a, a number of people around and it'll be a second uh, conference thank you very much professor I'm going to take one more question and then uh, turn to you Francesca but thank you very much for those insights uh, please sir yeah can we have the microphone here 
So um, my, my perspective is as follows. Um, my name is Sami Sambu, and uh, I'm, I'm a Kenyan national, but living here in Belgium. I'm here on behalf of the Association of Kenyans here. And uh, I wanted to say the following, that, uh, you know, the view from the ground is often as follows, that uh, you have, you know, this major donors putting money into the country, and typically there's a showboating politician who's going to say, I'm the one that did it. You know, you may have your sign on the side of the road that says, you know, this is a EU-Africa cooperation and so on, but it really, they, they take the credit, the honor, and, and they shouldn't do that, of course. And the people believe it. That's even worse, right? Um, and the other view is that when you t go to a different region in the country, folks say uh, there is a bias. There's a regional bias. That particular area of the country is favored over the other, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now I think that they're starting to come up alternative solutions to perhaps deal with this. Um, one is uh, the devolution of, of governance. Um, and I think, uh, you, know, you know, Kenya as an example, for instance, has uh, a devolved system of government now with a new constitution. Um, they ought to be power, or, you know, given to the regional. I, I do believe they have that power, actually, that the regional governors can, you know, engage with major donors and they can engage even with private, um, right. you know, uh, creditors out the, outside the country to to initiate projects that matter to right. their people. The second aspect, and so you know, the example. So you'll of have Turkana, to be very, very brief now because oh, right. I want to turn back to the panel, and then there right. are. Right. Um, I think the other aspect. There are two more points I want to raise. Uh, the, the other alternative is direct democracy. Could okay. we have people? Could we have the nurses, the farmers, etc., et decide on where the teachers? You know, right. where are the roads going to be built? The final point I had to make is, um, you know, talking about the internet. I don't think we talked about the That's internet true. at all. For young people, this is so important. Very good. Okay. It's an avenue out. It, it's, it's a way to actually, you know, create jobs for themselves and, and even communicate with the world, which is something they want to do Thank uh, you. You know, a lot. Thank you very much for raising those issues. I'm going to start with Francesca. Um, yes, thank you. And in fact, it's quite good he asked a question about Internet because I want also to go back to, to, to Doledi from Sierra Leone to say that indeed uh, we, we, we don't, Africa is not one, and I mean, we, we actually have uh, projects in small, big countries, uh, poor, less advanced, more advanced. And one example I wanted to give before I heard your question was to say that actually we managed to have even a blending operation, uh, so mixing grants and loans in Central African Republic on the backbone, you know, basically, which is the optic fiber, you know, introducing the optic fiber in Central African Republic, which basically nobody, you know, believed that we would go ahead. I think we're actually doing with the EU African Development Bank. Because indeed, you know, uh, connectivity, digitalization, we believe it's, a, it's an important element. It's a critical for, again, like a bit like energy, a bit like roads, okay? Like all infrastructure for, for so many sectors. Uh, and on, on the social, you know, impact again, and, and actually whether we take that into account, the communities, I think this is also part of it of our lessons learned to say that uh, we started building roads uh, throughout Africa, and then we realized that those roads meant that uh, you know, track drivers were driving through the roads, stopping at the various villages, and you know then you uh, you, you you find a connection between the spread of AIDS uh, uh, into those villages, you know, through the women. You know, the ve very clear thing that we d did not realize until we started doing you know social right. uh, kind of and also hearing you know the, the community. So this is something that now, for example, we systematically building into our project to say what would be the impact, you know, what is the social impact social. on the community. This is just an example on the health, but if we do something in Central African Republic, for example, we'll be 
supporting some small bridges, we'll have to apply, you know, do no harm approach. We have to see, you know, what does it mean connecting two communities who have been fighting each other until now, you know? Will it bring reconciliation? What can we do to help that reconciliation? So we really need to embed that community uh, perspective much more. And perhaps maybe as a, as a final to say that indeed when we, when we do, uh, you know, um, support feeder roads, we really always try to, of course, use, uh, you know, local labor. I mean, uh, uh, high intensity, uh, in French is the travaux, or haute intensité de main you know, you use the local communities to, to, to do the, to build the roads, which are feeder roads, which are much more, you know, less sophisticated, and to maintain the roads as well. So that, that aspect is more and more embedded. And I think when we think, again, urbanization and housing and urban development, that is going to be a very critical part of uh, mm -hmm. also how uh, the communities are fully participating in the decision of, of those infrastructures. Okay. I'd like to give the final word to Mutuli, but if, uh, Ala, you have something very quick you want to add after the comments, uh, do so now. Professor, the same thing. Uh, otherwise, I would like to give the floor to Matuli. You, you, okay. you're okay. All right, <laughs> Professor. Professor, are you okay? Professor, you know, are you okay? Oh, just one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, okay. because you asked the question as to where the synergies are. Yes. The initial question you asked, yes. we did not talk about it. Well, we did. We, we did. Okay. We, maybe we, we, we did. Maybe we did. We did. <laughs> no, okay, we did. I had to keep bringing you back to it, but we did. <laughs> okay. All right. I agree with you. So, that the, uh, uh, let me just say one thing. What, uh, uh, of course, there is a Jacka person here, so that the uh, uh, Jacka person stationed here, so that the, any question. Of course, you just He's a very strong partner of ours. <laughs> so, that is. Uh, uh, but one thing I could say is that the, uh, um, the uh, JICA is very good at doing master plans, right? That the, uh, now JICA doing three big master plans for the corridors, the uh, one in Africa, the, uh, from uh, uh, northern Africa, from, uh, from Kenya going up and down, yeah. and one from Mozambique down, and the west, uh, Abidjan surrounding that uh, part. And that the, uh, uh, they identify good uh, projects, etc. But of course, you need the private sector people to do the projects. And that the, uh, um, uh, uh, and then that many Japanese business people there, but there are many, many, many European companies around. And that's and they know the area; they have expertise. So probably that's where the uh, uh, they can all march and do this uh, connectivity issues, project logistics together. And that probably one, and that's an area that you are very interested, of course, that you can experiment on connectivity issues. And that is what I think I would, uh, a, 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 as one concrete uh, uh, suggestion to go from where, uh, to go from here, that I would suggest for you to, to, uh, to take up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Mutuli. I just want to raise one point around <clears throat> the fiscal space from governments in terms of investment and infrastructure. Is to say that is Japan and EU, please support African countries that have natural resources to set up sovereign wealth funds. They've squandered the opportunity in the oil boom that saw oil price at $100 per barrel. Now we're back. Well, it's moving up now. It's nice, $60 per barrel, but it's not $100 per barrel. So sovereign wealth funds will go a long way in creating long-term savings for these countries to, in order for them to invest in infrastructure. Botswana is a good example. They can learn from peers, but uh, my plea to Japan and Europe to support them to set up these SWFs. 
Maturi, I would like to ask you one final sort of question, crystal ball gazing, if you like, looking forward, 2063 or even earlier. Do you think these connectivity plans, infrastructure development that we've talked about, do you think they're high enough on the global conscience, if you like, for people to be really the investors, the private sector, for public communities, civil society, governments, China, Japan, India, Europe, really, is it there, or are we just sort of creating a narrative around it? Certainly, these issues are, the issue of infrastructure is high upon the agenda, much higher than it was 10 years ago. Of course, you do have diversions in terms of attention, maybe migration issues across the Mediterranean, in wars here and there, that, that will happen from time to time, but everyone recognizes that infrastructure is a long-term investment, is a game-changer, it's an opportunity for business, I think they certainly have on the agenda. And I'm optimistic. I think a lot of progress will be made, but we have to be focused on it. Okay, thank you very much. So this brings us to the end of what I think for me has been a really learning conversation because I've learned a lot about, well, obviously the competition that's out there and all the different rivals, if you like, in the great power game that are out there in Africa at the moment competing for projects. And I think competition can be good. Some people play by the rules. And I just wonder if we don't need to actually have worldwide rules on, on governance in, in uh, connectivity issues. I think it's something that, you know, everyone's talking about connectivity. Maybe it's time that we set out the global agenda for connectivity rather than talking region to region. So, you know, there is competition, but I really do believe there is room for cooperation on such an urgent issue. And if Japan and Europe can't do it together, I really can't think of any other like-minded uh, nations, powers, organizations, agencies, who could do it. So thank you very much indeed. Please join me in thanking our panelists. And please join us outside for refreshments as well. Thank you very much for your participation.